My name is James Ramsey, and I am a, you know what it is, don't you? Big fat sinner. That's right. And guess what? So are you. At least that was the message last week, uh, that we are sinners. Uh, That's what Paul was talking about. We're working through Romans, and he left us with this thought uh, in chapter 2, verse 16. If you've got your Bibles, it's helpful to to follow through. It'll be up on the screen, but it's good just to to see it in your own Bible. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 16, he said this, And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Now, if that doesn't make you stop and go, ooh... Um, then something's up. You know, God will see everything that is hidden. And there will be no secrets kept from him. Every thought, every deed, everything you've done in secrecy, he will know and the day will come, he'll bring that to light. And you see, they go, wow, um, you know, are you a sinner or not? And we looked at that last week. And one thing I want to say about that is that the world sometimes doesn't like it when the church calls it sinful. Uh, in fact, if you poll people who, who aren't, you wouldn't identify themselves as Christians and you ask them, what are the things you most dislike about the church or Christians? Uh, guarantee you, one of the ones in the top three will always be, we'll talk about another one a bit later on, but one of the things I'll always say is, oh, Christ, they're so judgmental. Yep, that you, that's no surprise, is it? The church is so judgmental. And I think one of the reasons why maybe we, we get that rap is because we, we do, we call out sinners. We say, you're, you're sinful. It's a sinful world. Uh, and we call sinners. But, but the way Paul uses it here, it's not, it's not as if Paul's there going, you sinners, as if he's pointing the finger, looking down his nose, looking down upon people, going, look at you dirty, rotten sinners, you know, unlike me, who is clean and high and holy. It's, it's not set in a... It's, uh, the, the stance, the attitude is not from a point-the-finger judgmental position where, where Paul's calling us sinners and, and pointing at his own sin. It's simply an observation. Uh, Perhaps a way to help with this is if we were to replace the word sinner with another word. Uh, Because sinner is a loaded word. Uh, The Bible often used two words side by side throughout the Psalms and Scriptures. Um, And the word it will often put with sinner is, is rebel. Uh, That that we have all rebelled. We've all rebelled against God. Now, would, would anyone deny that? No, and it's kind of that, that attitude. It's an observation. It's like kind of all of you have rebelled against God. All of you have gone your own way and ignored what He has to say, and 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 put yourself first or or other things first before God. Uh, and so, Paul left us with this this thought that no matter who you are, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, a Gentile simply just someone who's not a Jew. Uh, so no matter who you are, all of you. We've all rebelled against God. We're all sinners. Not a you sinner, but it's an observation. We've all sinned. We've all sinned. He then leaves us here in verse 17 of chapter 2. He goes on. The story goes on. His argument goes on. Uh, Because if you remember from last week, I said before the good news can be good news, it has to be bad news, particularly those who think they're good. Have you ever tried explaining to someone who thinks they're good that they're actually a rebel and a sinner? I ha- it's really hard. They don't want to hear it. They're like, but, but I'm good, James. It's all right. You know, I'm sure God looks at me and goes, oh, no, I'm, I'm not a sinner. I, I'm, I'm a good person. It's really, really hard to, to convince someone um, that there is a saviour and there is a cure when they don't have acknowledge that they're a sinner or that they have a disease to begin with. 
And so it's got to be bad news before it's good news. And so here Paul goes, he knows he's talking to people just like that. He knows he's talking to a group of people who think they are better than other people. In fact, he's talking to people who think they're special. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews, isn't he? Uh, And so here, from verse 17, You who call yourself Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants, you know what is right, because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Now, there are lots of reasons why the Jews would think they're special. Lots of reasons. Let's have a look. I've highlighted some. First of all, they're relying on God's law. These are the people of God who were given God's law. Remember, this is Abraham. This is, uh, you know, hey, you, you one individual out of all the world. See, I'm going to pick you, and from you I'm going to turn you into a great nation who will be mine. And I'm going to give you your own land, and I'm going to uh, set you apart, and you will bless the whole world, and you are to be mine. You'll be special and unique. You'll be holy. You'll be set apart from everybody else. They rely, and they are the ones who were given the law. Mount Sinai, as they left Egypt from Exodus, um, they were then given the the uh, Mosaic covenant, uh, which the Ten Commandments. You know the whole law. You know the scene. Um, they rely on God's law. They have this special relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. It's a relationship. They have been given promises by God that no one else has been given. It's a special relationship. You know what he wants. You know what is right. They're convinced that you are a guide for the blind. Um, They're certain that God's law gives them complete knowledge and truth. There is something unique about these people, and they know it. But he's not only highlighting what's special about them, why they might think they're special, but he's also highlighting their attitude about that, what they think about themselves. If we look at these words, you know, you call yourselves, next slide, thanks, you call yourselves Jews, you call yourselves Jews, you boast about, you're convinced that you are, you think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children, for you are certain... There's almost an, an arrogance, a pride here in, in what he's saying, isn't there? You know, and as for you Jews, you know, you're so certain you know, that you know what is right and wrong, that you are a teacher and a guide to the lost and the ignorant and the children of the world. That, you know, and he, he really puts it. Now, nothing we say today, I think there are places in Romans that are really hard to get your head around. And you've got to go, oh, gee whiz, that's, that's pretty heavy, Paul. I've got to think about that. This is not one of them, okay? I think in the next verses we'll look at, Paul puts it pretty plainly. And it's pretty easy to get what he's saying. So here he's talking to special people, people who think they are good, people who think they're set apart and different to other people. Verse 21 goes on. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonour God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Three examples, theft, adultery and idolatry. 
uh, and he says, you know what's right in these things, don't do them, and yet you do them. Now, they're rhetorical questions. He's not expecting them to say, I've never done those things. He's he's saying, you guys know you do this. You know you do this. Um, And what's a word that describes that, where our actions don't match up with with what we say or, or believe? Hypocrisy. Uh, hypocrisy. If you poll non-believers, non-Christians, again, one of the things they hate about the church, that they're judgmental, what's another thing they're going to say? They're a bunch of hypocrites. And we've all got stories, haven't we, of, of the Christian who, who you just sit there holding, you just sit there going, please don't call yourself Christian. Just, just don't do it. Like, <laughs> it's just not a good witness. Come on. That's why I don't have a fish sticker on my car. Um, <laughs> look at that guy cut me off. Like, oh, who does he think he is? Evil can evil. Um, here he calls them out on their hypocrisy. And he says, you know, you, you, you claim to know the truth. You claim to know what God wants, but you don't do it. That's just hypocrisy. You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonour God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Now, Paul's not the only one to say that. Mahatma Gandhi is quoted, it's quite a famous quote, you've probably heard it, where he says, I love your Christ, but I do not like your Christians, because your Christian, you Christians look nothing like Christ. That's a common thing you would hear nowadays, isn't it? People criticising the church because they're going, oh, yeah, you know, the, the, Jesus seems all right, but the church, Christians? Mm. So he calls them on it. And now he's going to go further and use a bit of an argument against them. He's going to say, okay, you, you think it's all about your knowledge? You think it's all about knowing the law, knowing good and right? The Jewish ceremony of circumcision. So here he uses a phrase here. And really what this does is it just highlights and encapsulates everything that the Jews think about themselves. So the one thing that physically differentiated the Jews from everybody else was circumcision. The one physical difference between them all. And so this difference, this set-apartness, this uniqueness, specialness of them, in this one phrase, this is what Paul captures, you think you're all special. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value. There's no point being special. The only reason you are is only if you obey God's law, that you would be the people of God who do what he says. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. Now he comes at it from the other angle. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. It's a great argument, isn't it? Who else uses this argument? Jesus. Where does Jesus use this argument? The parable of the good Samaritan. Isn't that what he's doing in that? Here's a Jewish man who has been beaten up and and robbed by bandits. He's left on the side of the road to die. And who comes walking by but a good upstanding religious Jew? You know, the priest comes by. Now, what does God's law say? To, to care for the poor and the, the oppressed and, and look out for, you know, to be a good, to love, love your neighbour. Um, and so he sees, walks on by. Next guy comes along, again, respected Jewish leader, looks and goes, oh, he walks on the other side of the road. And then who comes along? A Samaritan. Now, Samaritans are, are Gentiles. They're not Jews. In fact, uh, the way that the, in Jesus' day, you had sort of... Uh, Israel was kind of in a 
a, a loop like this, um, their, their area. And there was this big area in between uh, where the Samaritans lived. And if you're a good Jew, you wouldn't even walk through the Samaritan area. They were so despicable to you. You'd, you'd walk around it, which is why when Jesus walks through it and meets Samaritans, it's so scandalous. Like, oh my goodness. Um, but here he says, a Samaritan, you know, those people who live over there. He comes walking past, looks, sees someone in need, goes down, cares for him, pays for him at great personal cost and time, and goes, and then he asks, who's this person's neighbour? And they're going, the Samaritan? <laughs> And so that's right, because what's important here? Uh, you know, it's, it's those who obey the Lord, who do what God wants, not those who just know what God wants. And they know it. They know by saying the Samaritan is the good neighbour, it's like, oh, that's a hard thing to say. Um, but he used the same argument. Jesus isn't, God's not interested in, in hypocrites. Knowing the law does not achieve much. It's not what God's after. He doesn't just want you to know about God or know what's right. He wants you to do it. It goes on in verse 28. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you've gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. I, I love that. He's taken this argument. The Jews thought they were special because they had the law of God. They had knowledge. They were the teachers. And yet he says, no, 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 it's not about knowing. It's not about... You know, that you were the selected ones who first received the law of God. No, it's not to do with any of that because really, where does that get you if you don't obey it? And surely those who obey it are more righteous than you. God, God would affirm and be, be on their side more than yours. Of course, the underlying thing here is no one can obey it, can they? We're all hypocrites, really. And so he says it's, it's not about the law even. No, true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. I mean, this is emotional, language. this is relationship language now, isn't it? It's not just head and knowledge. It's about heart. A person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. When our hearts turn to God and not others, when we come into a relationship with him, when he becomes most important in our life, that's what's important. When we learn to follow him and not others. You know, I did a little bit of research into to, what does it look like to be a follower, to, to be someone who, you know, puts God first. I came across some research. Now, you'll know that if you go look at, at, at sort of management, leading, following, there's a ton of information about leading, isn't there? You can go find hundreds of models and books and resources about what good leadership looks like. But, but have you ever come across resources about what a good follower looks like? Or it is? Now, there's some out there. But, I mean, there's not a lot. There's not a lot at all. Barbara Kellerman is a professor at Harvard uh, School of Government, and she did some research into this. Uh, and she said there are five types. Now, there's numerous ways you can look at this, obviously. But she says five types of followers that are out there. Uh, so there are the isolates. So these are people who are completely detached. They, they come along 
but they're not invested. They're, they're not attached to anything relationally or they're not committed to the programs. They come along for whatever personal reason they might have, but that, that's all. Maybe for the pay. You know, if, if you think of a workplace, you know, why do you, some people go to work to get paid? That's it. <laughs> I couldn't care less about the people here or what we're trying to achieve or anything. It isolates. They, they come, they go as quick as they can. Uh, bystanders. Bystanders uh, are free riders who look out for themselves. They, they come along, they're there. Uh, they're not going to take off, they're, but, but you know, they're not really invested in the people. Or um, uh, they, They're still there to get what they want, but they, they hang around a bit longer. Then there's participants. These are people who, it costs them. This is where it costs them. They actually give up their time. They, they, they contribute. Um, they, they serve. They, they do things. Um, yeah, and because they, they want to make a difference. But they're not wholly in. Then there's activists. These are people who are heavily invested in the people and the processes. Uh, you know, they're, they're the doers. They're, they're going to be there. When you put something on, they're there. When uh, someone is hurting, they, 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 they care about that. They, they like the people. They're, they're invested. But then you've got the diehards. You know, does that even need definition, uh, defining? You know, the diehards. They're the ones who are going to go down with the ship. You know, nothing that happens here. Um, you could uh, um, do all sorts of things. They could be poorly treated. They, they, they could... They're just there. Nothing you do will get rid of them. Um, now, as, as a pastor, what do you think I want you lot to be? Diehards. Come on, we're all meant to be diehards, aren't we? Uh, and that, that surely is part of the aim, isn't it? Uh, as, as we are following Christ, you know, Christ doesn't say, come follow me. Um, he says, but, you know, just be a bystander or just participate. Uh, you know, he wants diehards. Now, this should be the end goal, shouldn't it? That, that we are to give our entire being and, and give it all to, to God. And that should be the ultimate goal. Um, but I want to suggest it's not. I want to suggest it's not. Think about Paul. So Paul is a Jew. Paul is somebody who has something to say about this. Uh, in Galatians, Paul gives a bit of his resume. He talks a bit about his history and who he is as an individual. And he has this to say. He says, You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion. You know what I was like. So before he met Christ, before he called himself a Christian... He was just a, a good Jew. He says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion? How violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Was he a diehard? Absolutely. He was out killing people, arresting people. He was, what did he say? I was far ahead of my fellow Jews. Now, you've got to think about Jews and who they were. Jews were people absolutely committed to the word of God. In fact, there's stories told because they had scrolls, not books. I remember at Bible college hearing the stories of how um, you know, some of the, the, the greatest minds in Jewish history with the scrolls, they could take a scroll that was, was 
bound and wound up. And they could take a pin and pierce it through that scroll and they could tell you every letter that that needle would, would go through. You could put it in different places. They could tell you. Like they, they just knew it. They could see it. They could picture it. It was just in their head. They studied it day and night. They knew it better than any of us would ever hope to, to know the Scriptures. I mean, they were committed to it. Uh, and there were numerous people. And here, Paul says, I was far ahead of all of them. Like, far ahead. Um, in my zeal for the traditions. Um, he was zealous, he was a diehard, and yet even as a diehard, if that was what it was all about, if it was all about you know, giving your all, being absolutely sold out and committed to the law of God and obedience and obeying and doing the right, if that's what it was all about, then Paul would have arrived. He would have gone, I made it, come, come follow me. But he doesn't, does he? In the very next verse, in verse 15, he says, But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvellous grace if it was all about just being sold out and being diehard Paul was there but he realised he was missing something he realised yeah he was, gonna, he was willing to go down with the ship but he realised he was on the wrong ship <laughs> he went, I'm not dying for this I'm not the, the law of God uh, there's something better uh, he realised he was missing heart he was missing the love he was missing the grace of God in his life he was missing that. I was at uh, karate training on Friday night. Uh, our girls go to, to karate. They, they love taking each other out, seeing who can, uh, can beat each other up the best. And, uh, and we, we train them and equip them to do it. It's great. Um, with more deadly force. Uh, yeah, that's not a punch. Either. This is how you throw a punch. But um, we were talking beforehand, and I was with a, a number of uh, you know, the, the sensei and a few of the parents, and, and we're talking about stuff. And one of them just starts talking about religion. I don't even know how we got onto it. Um, but it's all about, about, oh, religion's terrible, isn't it? I mean, the source of all fear in life. All, all religions are the same. All, all religions just perpetuate fear and, and guilt and shame. Uh, and it's, a, it's an awful thing. Religion, oh, it's just all the same. Um, you know, and, and I'm here pretty sure he knows I'm a Baptist pastor. <laughs> Glad you can feel so free to speak, uh, and and so he the, the conversation goes and yeah, there's a, there's a few nods and, and whatever else, and but it's a pretty common thing you would hear around workplaces, isn't it? Uh, that, that that more people have died from religious conflicts and wars than than any other thing, which, which is an absolute lie. Um, but but you know people like saying it, um, and and religion's bad for you and it, it's terrible and. And most religions are all about this, this zealous thing. It's about, here's the laws, here's the rules, and you've got to work your butt off to, to get it done, to do what you can. And if you don't, there's consequences, isn't there? Of course that generates fear. Of course when someone says, God knows what you're doing in secret, you better watch out, you better work harder, you better do more. Of course, it's, like, oh, it's anxiety-producing, isn't it? It's like, oh, my goodness, well, I'd better work harder and I'd better do more. And, and Paul just says, no, like, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with that. It's about the heart. It's about grace. It's about coming back to God and realizing, I don't have to work at this. I don't have to throw myself entirely at it. It's about relationship with God. And, and when people come to talk about Christianity, I don't want them to think that you know, this is all about fear and about doing right and wrong and shame and guilt. I don't want them to think about that because that's not what it is to me. That's not what it is to Paul. 
He says, no, no, no. We've got to have the heart. Our heart's got to come before God and realize that before I was even born, he chose me because of his grace. That nothing I do can, can earn me the love of God. Nothing I can do can, can, can disqualify me from the love of God. It is simply God's choice to look upon me and give it to me. And, and the promise of God and the scripture is that that promise is for everybody. There's not a single one of us that God looks at and rejects. God says, I love you. You are my creation. I want you to be part of my family. I, I've done everything needed to, to get you there. I, I have paid the penalty for all the sin, all the wrongdoing, for, the, for your rebelliousness against me. We're not going to ignore it. I'm going to deal with it. And I've dealt with it. And now you just come into relationship with me. Put me first in your heart. When I don't want people to think about Christianity and religion. I want them to go, it's all about love. What does Jesus say? Fulfills all the law. To love God and love your neighbour. In those two things, all the law is fulfilled. And, and people forget that. They think it's about becoming a diehard, a zealot. Working as hard as you can. But when you give your heart to God, when you, you, you realise who he is and what he's done for you, that the great love that he has and that everything he does is because of love, is it all right just to, to bystand or just participate? No, if you truly know who God is, you, you're going to want to give everything to him. You're going to want to put him first. Which I guess brings us back to one question for us are we like the Jews that Paul's talking to are we hypocrites do we act as Christians like the world thinks Christians act high and mighty judging others and 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 really being hypocrites are we living like that is what we say vastly different from what we do And if we're honest, the truth has to be yes, doesn't it? I talk about a holy, righteous God and how we're to live a great life and, and, and put others first and deny ourselves and take up our cross and sacrifice. And uh, I talk all about that, but how often do I do it? How often can people look and go, yeah, yeah you know, you put yourself first all the time? We're all hypocrites. How do we bridge that gap then? How do we bridge the gap? So that others can't. Most people think, oh, well, we need to, to work harder, don't we? That's the way you overcome hypocrisy, isn't it, in your life? Just work harder. Is there another way? What does it look like to come this way? Just be pretending or, or trying to speak about being righteous and holy and look at me and putting on a mask and I'm a great husband and my life's together. And What does it look like if we're actually just really honest about how sinful we are? What does it look like if we, 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 we don't pretend? We, we, you know, people go, wow, he's an open book. Well, he's really in tune with his sin, isn't he? Uh, what would that look like? Not just we work at getting better. If we're actually more honest about our sin, don't pretend to be saying we're not. In fact, I think that's actually easier. But you can't do that, can you, unless there's grace. Because if it is all about trying to achieve the law and do the right thing and please God, 
then you're really just admitting failure. And that's really hard for us to do. But when we go, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter how sinful I am. I'm still loved. I'm still accepted. I'm still a child of God. And that's the good news. <laughs> and we can get closer. So people can't accuse of poverty. It doesn't mean we're right. You know? And once we're more in, in tune with what we say and who we are, then God can, can slowly make us better. We can start speaking a little more honestly about, you know, I've got victory in my life. The Holy Spirit's helped me overcome sin. I am living a more selfless life because of Christ in me. The more humility I add to my words, the smaller the gap between who I am and who I say I am. I've found that to be true. We need to own our sins, but owning my sin is very different from living in it. We can be honest about my sin. It doesn't mean I embrace it. It doesn't mean I like it. It doesn't mean I'm happy with it. <laughs> and that's what Paul's going to address next. He's going to say, you know, so what? Does that mean we keep on sinning? <laughs> if it doesn't matter whether we obey the law or not, did, did you just sin? Because, you know, isn't it great? God loves me no matter what I do, so I'm just going to do what I do? Well, well, no, he's going to address that. But could we be honest? Could we be open with ourselves, with God and with others about our real struggles about our real sins, about where we do fall down, or will we continue to hide? Let me pray. Father God, thank you that as we come and bring ourselves entirely to you, uh, we don't find a, a lawgiver who, who is harsh in his judgment of us if we, we fail, but we find someone who, who, who lets us know what a good life looks like but then loves us to become better people and better at it. We thank you that in you we don't find judgment, we find love. We find an extravagant, awesome love that we find nowhere else. A, a kind of love that, that really shows us for the first time what real love can look like. And we would be fools not to give ourselves entirely to you, to say, here's my heart, here's my life, take me, Lord. Lead me in your ways. May your spirit change who I am. We'd be fools not to do that and to continue on trusting in our own effort, in our own will, in our own knowledge and understanding. So we thank you, Lord, that you're such a great God. In fact, we do more than thank you. We praise you. We praise you and we worship you that you are so wonderful. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us Help us to be honest. Help us to be very real with the things we show. Let us not be afraid of these things because they do not bring condemnation. They do not distance us from yourself. You've bridged that gap. You've forgiven our sins. We are secure in you. But help us to be real so that you can help us to overcome these things. Real with yourself, real with ourselves, and real with those around us. I pray for a movement, Lord, amongst us. A revival of where your spirit would help more and more of us to, to repent, to say we're sorry, to confess our sins, to be very real that we are big fat sinners. But we're so grateful 
that we have a huge, awesome God that is bigger than any sin we might have. We praise you and ask your blessing on us in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.